Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I'm back again for now until the next thing goes wrong. Uh, Mike won back as a co-host of Mike, Mike, and Oscar here after also Mike dutifully was uh, taking over the steed and the lead in my absence. Michael, uh, thank you once again for filling in and having such wonderful guest hosts fill in alongside with you. Yes, we took over the steed and the lead. Wow, I, I can't believe you're coming back with that amount of force, with that amount of. Uh, I had a week of prep work to get ready for. I was I was just making up hip hop lines in my head the whole time. And then that's like a you know a fourteenth century hip hop line. <laughs> but no, dude, I'm I'm glad to hear you back. I'm uh, glad you're doing better. I'm glad you didn't fall in half. Uh, I know your stomach. You had you had a boo boo, but it was worse than that. It was. It's all. This is. It's all just. It's. I'm. My body is 2020, like literally personified. It's yeah. just shit's going wrong because another day has passed, which sounds very apropos for what's been going on in the movie world as well lately. But that's what we're going to talk about today. But I'm very happy to be back with you. I'm very happy to be back with you, dear listener. We have a loaded episode today, and this Oscar race checkpoint. We are talking about film festivals we are talking about movies of all shapes and sizes we are talking about academy moves and we're going to kick them all off as we are recording this saturday afternoon because the venice film festival just wrapped up michael yeah i watched this whole award show it was all in italian it was in this little <laughs> auditorium i loved every minute of it i mean it was great camp kate blanchett emceeing some of it you know wonderful italian voices beautiful italian people i enjoyed it i, I would love to actually see it and it's in all its glory in a normal year the venice film festival ceremony and whatnot this seemed to be obviously scaled down but uh again i'm impressed and uh i thought they did a nice job for a couple hours there we did did have a couple winners mike we got a bunch of movies that are coming out of this fall film festival early receipts time as winners overall so i guess we'll start ripping them off here but you you didn't watch the show you kind of no i didn't because it. nothing could match up to what it was in my mind which was kate blanchett just at a microphone while a smiling guy with a huge mustache keeps like kneading a ball of dough behind him smiling at the camera yeah you thought this was like on the water gondolas <laughs> right right okay. like if you're gonna do it in venice i want everyone to be eating freshly baked pizza out of the oven while somebody yells behind them wearing a t-shirt and wiping down their brow but if that's not to be then i don't want it they basically shot this in one of the rooms of your podunk theater, but they were all dressed nice. I mean, that's what it, what it looked like to me. It looked like- trying to make me cry. Uh, that place is gone. I, I drove by it again yesterday, hoping for signs of life. I don't think it's happening. It certainly wasn't hosting the Venice Film Festival. I'll tell you that. No, it's dead. It should have died years ago. <laughs> I don't know why you're sentimental about it. If you like that thing was just gasping for breath, like ah, kill me, kill me. I will remember that you. thing had no customers for the last twenty years, and you're wondering why it went out of business. All right, we got we got some awards to talk about. This is ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised we're going to go long. We're going to do like, you know, two segments today and yeah. cut the episode. Anyway, best screenplay went to The Disciple, Michael. This is going to be an international film that's also going to premiere at the New York Film Festival. I just got a ticket for it, so I'm excited about that. Uh, otherwise, it's gotten good reviews. Any Any comments on The Disciple? Uh, not about the disciple, more about the New York Film Festival, and that we're going to have our first opportunity actually to partaking in that film festival as it does go completely digital, unlike Venice, which seemed to go off without a hitch, even though it was in person, though toned down. But New York Film Festival is all digital, and so, like you said, you bought a ticket for the disciple already. We have a couple tickets uh, that you and I both were able to get, so yeah. I'm excited to see what happens there. But no, this is the first I know about the disciple just in general. It's a great slate over at New York. It's mm -hmm. all virtual, like you said, and it's fairly cheap. Like, I'm basically going to get away with a New York Film Festival slate of 10 films at yeah. the moment. And it's going to cost me what it would cost me to do take, like, one trip to the city. 
Yeah. Honestly. I, I, you can't beat that right now. I think it's a great opportunity, for, especially for guys like us who uh, are kind of chomping at the bit to start entering the festival circuit. Definitely, definitely. Uh, but I, I went years ago, and I spent so much money. My brother and I went to a sushi place one time, just hundreds of dollars across the street. At the sushi oh, place. no. Like, because there's no amount of sushi that fills anyone up, right? So... We we didn't look at the menu prices, I guess, so we just kept ordering one thing after another thing. Bring me rolls until I tell you to not bring rolls. Just like we started signaling with our hands at one point. But yeah, no, like hundreds of dollars later, like idiots. But uh, th- that is what could happen when you go to the city for, at a film festival. Right. And, you know, we, we're getting off cheap here. I mean, we'll make a microwave burrito and watch... Uh, you know, Nomadland. Nah, and multiple microwave burritos. Exactly, yeah. All right. <laughs> We're going to go on tangents today, folks. We haven't <laughs> talked to each other in a while. Look, Best Actress went to Vanessa Kirby. She gave a great speech uh, about her role in Pieces of a Woman. She won this over Frances McDormand, by the way, in Nomadland. So it's not going to be the last time we hear about Nomadland, though, for these awards especially. But people were happy for Vanessa Kirby. She was, uh, she's been big, obviously. We've talked about her in Mission Impossible, and she mm-hmm. was a big player in The Crown. And yep. I saw a lot of people uh, ecstatic for her on film Twitter as soon as it was announced. I would think anytime anyone beats Frances McDormand, it's kind of a big upset when it comes to uh, pulling off what she's able to do in actress or actress roles or lead actress roles. So good for her. Good for Vanessa Kirby. Good for the Mission Impossible franchise, too, by the way. Good for the Mission Impossible franchise as an ending point there. Yes. No, <laughs> no. I think, like, look, last year we had a, an actor, I forget who it was, and that, that's probably case in point, beat Joaquin Phoenix, and Joaquin Phoenix wound up winning, you know, the the Oscar. So does this matter? Does Frances McDormand fall off the board because Vanessa Kirby beat her here? No. Right. But it does say something for the film with uh, Shia LaBeouf, Pieces of a Woman. Uh, we did have Olivia Coleman and Emma Stone. They're two recent winners that have gone on to win Oscars uh, in their own right. So, I mean, this award, you know, it is slightly predictive. It's What's not predictive is be- best actor. They tend to select the Italian gentleman up late michael <laughs> three out of the last six have been italian actors and pier francesco favino won for padre nostro he is a character actor in, a, in, a, in american films mike you might recognize him in world war z i mean look up his imdbs in a bunch of movies but uh he won for padre nostro of all the names you've butchered and baffled on this mm-hmm. show and you come in here and nail Pier Francesco Favino, like he's one of your brethren. <laughs> I didn't even have to spell it out phonetically for myself, because I'm usually doing that with a lot of these pronunciations. If I look them up, no, I just, just it's natural, came natural. <laughs> Good for Pier Francesco. Obviously, he's kind of one of those that guy actors. Yes. You know his face. You named a couple of the movies he was in. Uh, he was also in Rush. He was in Angels and Demons. I, I don't know much about uh, Padre Nosco. Nostro, I'm sorry. Uh, The IMDb says two young boys, Valerio and Christian, form a powerful friendship over the summer. So they're not even giving you all that much, but the poster does have a white chalk outline. So I imagine there's some kind of nefariousism afoot. Nefariousism. I can't even. Well, I could say Pierre Francesco. (laughs) Right. Say that ten dollar word. My goodness. That that's the price of a New York Film Festival movie ticket right there. That word. Holy shnikes. Anyway. I'm sure he's a great actor in a, in a starring role. I'm, I'm glad that the Venice Film Festival can pick Italian men to win some of their awards. <laughs> Fine. Good for them. All right. Best Director went to Kiyoshi Kurosawa for Wife of a Spy. This is another category that has not been very predictive in a long while. You know what's interesting about all these movies that you've mentioned so far is that at least on IMDb, we're at the stage where they have less than 100 reviews each, and I don't know who these people are. Maybe they're all people who are in Venice that are flocking to the site to get their uh, say-so in, but all middling scores very uh, very much so far. Padre Nostro itself was like a, uh, it was a 5.0 with less than 100 reviews. This one is a, a, a 5.5 with less than 100 reviews, so I'm always... That always scares me. I'm on the record a bunch of times about saying that. That's a continual take I have. But again, not to take anything away from from the performance there of Kiyoshi Kurosawa. So Wife of a Spy is something that's now on my radar that wasn't before Venice. I agree with you. It's on the radar now. And I would also say and caution folks out there that 
Look, I mean, we've seen middling reviews turn into Oscar nominations. Mm-hmm. That worked for what Joker, you know, fell down to after some film festivals. But most notably, that worked for Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit had terrible, you know, Good scores uh, last year at Fast Forward a month or two. So that was a movie that got as many nominations as anything and had a surge towards the end. So I'm with you. On the radar, not necessarily kicked out, but... It helps, I think, especially in a year like this one, if the critics love you. Sure. Anyway, The Silver Lion went to Michel Franco uh, of New Order. He's the director. uh, He's a Mexican filmmaker. This movie's coming out this September uh, in Italy. So I think that tends to have a little something to do at these festivals (laughs) if a movie is getting its world premiere (laughs) kind of you know in italy you know an italian festival and then in italian movie theaters anyway playing playing a home game there you think we've buried the lead because (laughs) nomad land from chloe ja which is the correct pronunciation i am told and it's a terrible job by me for yeah. pronouncing it Zhao all this yeah, time. You and me both. The Golden Lion, the picture of the festival, that has gone to Joker, Roma, and Shape of Water lately. Now it goes to the Francis McDormand, David Strathairn picture that has gotten 100% on 21 reviews. That's going to be the New York Film Festival centerpiece that we're going to see uh, in a couple of weeks, Mike. Uh, I think... There's been a lot of strong praise for this Chloe Ja film. It's a good sign that it won the Golden Lion here. Yeah, and especially lately, I mean, Roma won the Golden Lion too in its year. Everything that's won the Golden Lion, especially lately, has gone on to big six category success right. come Oscar Sunday. Uh, we're on a string of about four years in a row, five years in a row of that. So uh, you can't be anything but excited for both Francis McDormand, for the movie Nomadland, and for Chloe Zia specifically and in general. And we got our first look at Nomadland's trailer, which was kind of a teaser trailer. It didn't really give us much, but my God, did it fill you with all types of melancholy? Just from this look alone, Mike, I was like, yeah, this is going to be a player. You could see the the tracks that this one's leading up to come Oscar season already. We know how good of a director she is, mm-hmm. and obviously Frances McDormand has the chops and, and the, you know, the presence to carry a film. But, like, it's around sunset. Frances McDormand is walking through a trailer park for lack of a better word but it's filled with trailers and rvs and people sitting by campfires she's invited to join one but she won't do it mike (laughs) she's like i'm just taking a walk i'll be back soon and you you're right we're gripped by the desire to see her join in socially but the movie's called nomadland she's probably not going to do as much I mean, if the the feeling of the score and and Francis McDormand's face and just the, the way the camera was set up and shooting this trailer didn't fill you with enough like morose, how about this <laughs> synopsis? Follows a woman in her sixties who, after losing everything in the Great Recession, embarks uh. on a journey through the American West, living as a van dwelling modern day nomad. My God. Yeah, yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready for it. I mean. <laughs> Chloe Zha makes movies about, you know, these personalities that are kind of uh, loners, I would say. And it's out in broad landscapes with a lot of space. And it's going to be Francis McDormand playing such loner. You know, the Celtics Celtics win a game seven. Football season's just about to start. I didn't want to go through the rest of this weekend smiling anyway, so this is fine. I can't believe it took to the X minute of our podcast for you to mention the Celtics. I thought we were going to come out and you'd just be like, Celtics, Celtics, Celtics. And nobody cares. I just want you to know. Nobody. But, oh, wait. I'll save it for when we win the title. Okay. Yeah. I mean, at least at that point, you'll have hardware. You can, you'll have, you know, the equivalent of the golden line of this episode right. to talk about. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Nomadland, strangely uh, alluring trailer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't wait to see more of it. And I mean, this is exactly what what the Golden Lion did for Joker. It's what it did for The Shape of Water. It's what it's done the last couple of years. Roma, all those. It's just it makes you want to see it that much more. And I also think it's kind of cool that Venice has kind of adopted more of an Oscars lens. I don't know if that's just by happenstance or by chance or if they've done it specifically, but it's kind of cool to see Venice push more Oscar-worthy films to the forefront and kind of highlight those and put those on a showcase. I think that helps their relevancy as well, even though it's this decades-long film festival and one of the very important ones we have. 
And let's give credit where credit's due, Mike. They showcased a lot of great work from female filmmakers at yeah. this particular Venice Film Festival, something they did not do very well at the last few. I mean, there were one sausage fest after another <laughs> out there, you know, oh, after you take that gondola to through to the theater. It's just <laughs> a lot of bros. And... This year, I mean, you have Regina King, you know, to talk about some more movies that did well. Regina King's One Night in Miami. It was out of competition at Venice, but it has gotten 35 reviews, 100%. Leslie Odom, Aldous Hodge playing all of these, you know, world-famous athletes who had this night together. Ant Thompson, Eric Cohn at IndieWire really liked it. A lot of high praise for One Night in Miami. When this one came out, the internet kind of like exploded anyone who was at venice who saw this movie just was gushing about it nonstop, and they were so sold on the performances and they were so sold on regina king's directorial or feature directorial debut and they were all very very excited Uh, you could see with good reason i'm always a big advocate of let talented people try other talented things that aren't necessarily in their lanes and i'm excited to see regina king get this chance to tell this story and this is one that's been on my radar for a while I'm, i'm very interested to see it for myself We've seen a lot of uh, directorial debuts just become smash hits and smash hits at award ceremonies during award season. From Bo Burnham and Jordan Peele to Greta Gerwig, Mike. So they've done well, not only at the Oscars, but during all the precursor award shows. So it's more than possible that Regina King just knocked it out of the park on her first uh, at-bat here. I mean, is there there a more alluring premise than having a movie where Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown hang out in Miami together? <laughs> what, what's, what's music to my ears is that this is like a great play and it's it's really theatrical and she directs the shit out of it. This is on Screen Talk, by the way. So I, I love when plays are turned into to films and are done really well. Mm. So like I, I just, I want to I want to listen to a film and listen to great dialogue and listen to that kind of story told through dialogue as much as possible. I love the theater. So like this really uh, appeals to me. I heard some reviews though, that, you know, it's a little heavy handed at times. So just to play devil's advocate (laughs) a little bit, you know, those weren't exactly light men either. So, you know, I mean, they, they came, they came as advocates packed a punch. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Look, if if the worst thing about it is that they're preaching to this choir. Right. All right. We're fine with that. Mm -hmm. Mike, the world to come, a Mona Fassfold picture with Vanessa Kirby again, uh, Catherine Waterston, Christopher Abbott, Casey Affleck. This is about pioneers in the American West. And there's a romance that develops between the women as they're surviving this frontier life. So it is... A movie that got 14 reviews, 100%. Ann Thompson went crazy about it on her show. She loves this movie, so another movie that's getting a bump here. I wonder if, if the people behind The World to Come here saw that they were coming out in the same year as News of the World, which is also about kind of the Old West and Tom Hanks traveling across the during uh, like Civil War times, and they were like, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but also... <laughs> Yeah, th- th- movies like this just seem to be very quarantine-ish, right? And mm. I wonder if they basically said, all right, this is this is a metaphor for quarantine. We didn't expect it to be one. Let's just right. put it out now anyway, right? I mean, it's got to do well now, if ever. Well, there's certainly enough. I, I mean, if it's a perfect year. You're absolutely right that there's enough thirst and desire out there for new movies of any kind that I think anything is going to get watched. Not saying that this one needs to be have desperate conditions to be watched because it sounds like a great movie and obviously Vanessa Kirby did what she did. So I, I think there's a lot of, of people that are going to get to these films that maybe wouldn't have in other years. So you're right, it could be a perfect year for that. Yeah, before people stuck in their homes living next to each other <laughs> can't leave. Uh-huh. A lot of shit going down around them. I don't know. Anyway, sounds familiar. Never gonna snow again. This is a Wojciech pick uh, over uh, in Poland. He was he sending us immediate tweets about this movie being Poland's representative and best international film, and its early reception at Venice was strong as well. One hundred percent on six reviews. So don't 
say that Mike, Mike, and Oscar didn't talk about the best international feature today, even though I know we talked about a lot of English-speaking movies for, for the Oscars, but uh, this is a good sign for, for Poland. They've been doing great in that category of late. We are slowly trying to drag ourselves along to become cultured students of the world, so we're getting there. Very slowly. Three out of the ten <laughs> movies I picked at NYFF international films all right mike uh, another clear winner coming out of tiff the early days of tiff here and by the time you guys are listening to it it'll it'll already have premiered Halle berry's bruised which is about an mma fighter and she stars and directs the movie netflix bought this for what's rumored to be 20 plus million mike look I don't care what the premise is. I don't care if it's MMA. If I told you Halle Berry was playing a character in a movie whose name literally was Jackie Justice, you're watching that movie. (laughs) That's pretty cool. Isn't that badass? That's pretty badass. Uh, But look, I mean, the film festivals are times, Mike, to, you know, celebrate a lot of movies. It's like a banquet. Everybody's just happy. Everybody's just positive. However, there's usually some shat being talked. There's usually (laughs) a few people snickering in the back. And look, we got some surprise early losers of the festival circuit at this moment. And the biggest surprise from that is Ammonite. Ammonite, 67% on 15 reviews, so kind of mixed reviews. And again, they don't tell the whole story, Mike. We, We both know that. This is uh, Francis Lee from God's Own Country, the director here, Kate Winslet, Saoirse Ronan. Scotty Feinberg wrote a piece that had a lot of red flags in it, you know, according to him, about Ammonite, saying that, you know, the Academy doesn't necessarily go for lyrical poems like this in the Best Picture category. He doesn't really see this being such an awards contender, at least in a normal year. This is an abnormal year, but I was shocked. I was shocked to see Ammonite not come out strong. Are you trying to tell me the film world may not have been ready for the adaptation of the lesbian archaeological love story? I like look, there's no way this movie is better <laughs> than Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which had a much sleeker, cooler just a better premise because the fact that she's bored just going over bones all day with a brush well, one brushes bones, the other one brushes pain. I could see the comparisons at some point. But then they make eyes at each other. Right. Like, I just can't. I'm not mature enough for this premise. I'm not. And I love Portrait of Lady on Fire. We're allies. It has nothing to do with that. It's silly that she's an archaeologist, <laughs> is what I think, at the end of the day. And it's it metaphorically is, silly. It is shocking that something that's alluring and, and enticing enough to land both Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan is being treated the way Ammonite is. So not that they aren't worthy. I mean, they've obviously done enough in their careers, but with the kid gloves, they've kind of, you have to treat them with because they are Hollywood royalty and everything they do is so great that people are taking the shots they are at this film. I think it should be an even bigger red flag. That's how I kind of interpret it. Is that, I mean, Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan, I think are incapable of making something unwatchable. So if it's, if it's taking the digs that it's taking, that's kind of a big deal to me. Look, if it's exactly what we fear it is, we're watching every minute of it and loving every minute of it still, right? I mean, <laughs> well, we're going to watch. I mean, yes, but we're going to watch it either way and we're going to we're going to judge for ourselves and maybe there's more than meets the eye here, hopefully. I I I find it hard to believe that again that those two can team up and make something that's abhorrent anyway, so Kate Winslet seems to be the one getting the most buzz now, though. I, I think that's important to know anyway. Mainstream, Michael. Mainstream is from Gia Coppola. I know we were shouting this movie's yeah. prospects out in a former episode. Maya Hawk, Andrew Garfield. It got crushed. I mean, 44%, nine reviews, not promising. So that one, when, when, I, I think when a movie gets you know hit with some really bad reviews, that can hurt. In this cautionary tale, three people struggle to preserve their identities as they form an eccentric love triangle within the fast-moving internet age. Trying to have the social media climate be a backdrop for a film I don't think is something that's been perfected yet. It's It's a very aspirational and difficult kind of tone to touch and especially have it be brought into the Oscars and awards mainstream. I, I certainly don't think we're there yet. So it, it's a tall task and I can see this one falling flat. I will say that one still of Garfield's face 
yeah. blown up on that movie screen where he looks like a crazy person and somebody I guess it's I'm assuming it's my hawk is standing in front of it looking at him as he like has got his wide eyes and mouth open wide I think that was the one still frame or the one you know screenshot takeaway that I saw most from the early festival markets anyway so they have at least that going for them I think that kind of landed uh, as something that could be meme worthy if nothing else that'll get the uh, people asking what movie is that from I want to parody it. I'm not. Li- I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I think it looks a little manic, to be yeah. honest with you. So I, I don't necessarily see that still. And I'm like, oh my god, I got to see this movie. Andrew Garfield. He's his face, his crazy eyed face, is blown up <laughs> on a screen behind my hawk. I got to see the movie. But you're right. I mean, it's absolutely what a lot of people are leading with in the trades. It is right. that poster picture kind of thing. I'm surprised. I'm surprised Gia Coppola, after some of the articles that were touting these lineups, had her front and center that the movie would just hit with such a thud. That, that I'm a little surprised by that, but yeah, it's a clear casualty thus far. Hey, I'm sorry it's a casualty, but it's nice to be talking about film festivals, you know? Yes. It's nice to have... This is the first week, I said this in text to you, this is the first week it's actually felt like an Oscars year yet. Like, we're actually going to working towards an award season. We're actually working towards film festival relevancy. It's, it's nice to have that feeling back in our lives. I agree. And you know what else is a typical feeling for you and I uh, going into an award season? <laughs> Blind rage at the Academy? Absolutely, Mike. So take us off here as the Oscars announced new representation and inclusion requirements for best picture eligibility. All right. So the Oscars and the Academy, uh, they did, as the headline suggests, they put forth new standards for inclusion, representation and and big tent poles that any film under best picture consideration must meet at least a couple of them. Uh, Clayton Davis, who is a friend of ours, who is now working for Variety, is the article we're going to quote a couple times. And here's how he started off this is a quote directly from clayton davis's article for the 94th and 95th oscar ceremony scheduled for 2022 and 23 a film will submit a confidential academy inclusion standards form to be considered for best picture beginning in 2024 for the 96th oscars a film submitting for best picture will need to meet the inclusion thresholds by meeting two of the four standards all right bit my hand during that entire reading (laughs) but look basically the review process will begin over the next two years Mm -hmm. and the requirements will start the year after that so like you said 2024 nothing is in effect this year and the big statement of that is two of the four standards that i am going to rage over later but look we, we we've Listen to a lot of pods. We've read a lot of uh, articles from the trades, etc. There are three obvious takes here, and let's talk about the two, the first two, really quick. Take one is that we all wish this wasn't necessary. Right. We wish studios were just inclusive and representative already. Obviously, that's not the case. We'll talk about it. Take two, Michael, is that this does not ne- go nearly far enough. Uh, toward equality or even close to that even in their language but if you're gonna set requirements then you should go much further that those yeah, are two it, hot takes from a lot of people that and that's that's the easy argument to make out of this is seeing these standards and we're going to get into the intricacies of all of them we're going to break them down but seeing these standards and you, you kind of ask yourself if this is as far as the academy is going why are they necessary at all? Because don't most films who contend for Oscars already at least have this much representation as is? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. the answer is yes. I mean, you can just do a cursory look through IMDb yourselves and you can base it on one factor, gender. You don't even yeah. have to go further than gender. And the answer is yes. The vast majority of films made by the Hollywood system already qualify. And they certainly already qualify in Best Picture. If you look at all of the nominations of the last few years, you know the vast majority of them qualify already. And I think if you dug deeper, you would see that they do qualify. So right. what, what are these rules really changing is my question, thesis question for this entire you know segment here. But we'll get into uh, Somewhat of an answer at least we and you and I have already gone back and forth a bunch on this a lot but the way I try to view it is that I don't think these are meant to be looked at as uh, you know the the last big move I think these are more supposed to be safeguards that they're putting minimum thresholds in place but when you put minimum thresholds in place 
that are already industry standard as is, that's when you run into the problem with tokenism and quota filling and and these become basically all the studios have to do to do as opposed to what the studio should at least be doing. And we're going to talk about the differentiation between the two, but there is a precedent to suggest that doing it in the way the Academy is doing this is going to be doing more harm than good in the long term. There's historical precedent there. Mike, we just covered the Paramount decrees, and you explained them beautifully in that episode, and we've gotten a lot of praise for it, thankfully, and thanks to everybody out there listening. Yes. If these standards were put out at the same time of, as the Paramount decrees, they would make sense. As You're talking being, like literally in the 1940s. Literally in the yeah. 1940s. They would make sense as being that backstop, mm-hmm. right? That legal backstop or that, uh, you know, line in the sand from the academy as being a minimum threshold that could make some sense. Yeah. To put them out in 2020 mm-hmm. after Frances McDormand is giving her speech about inclusion writers on the Oscar stage, after Michael B. Jordan is out in the L.A. streets giving the speech, the rousing speech that he's giving, John Boyega, etc., like for them to put these minimum, you know, requirements out there to me is a is a joke, yeah. and it is not going nearly far enough, and it's almost offensive. But look, the third response that I've been hearing most everywhere is that measures like this, going to your point, Michael, measures like this in other industries have not worked and we're going to talk about some of that today basically the white sausage fest that is the nfl leadership offices throughout the country is still a white sausage fest that when you put minimum requirements that are just so low that are already industry standard that people are already abiding by it becomes quota doesn't work it's only quota filling and that and, and quota filling is doing the minimum just to satisfy the minimum because you have to do it, which is the right. exact opposite of representation. It actually encourages the white people that really need these rules in place because they're a little racist. Let's just be quite frank. You know, let's just be frank about it. The the powerful white men who are in charge of these, you know, organizations actually twisting their much mustaches because they they got some issues right that they're working mm-hmm. through they can do the bare minimum now and be by implication i know we disagree on this point a little bit eligible for academy awards stamped of approval on their product right right uh, yeah I, and we do i mean th- we do we don't see eye to eye specifically but you're right in that they are academy approved to be in the Oscars conversation officially. You're absolutely right. Well, let's get into them, though, because, I mean, the, these standards, we got to go one by one. I right. didn't want to do that going into today, but I, I, I think it's important. All right. So before we dive into exactly and specifically what the standards are, we got to make note of the groups the Academy is spotlighting and aiming to bring to the forefront with these standards. So uh, for the language of the standards and their qualifying texts coming up, when a standard mentions, quote, an underrepresented racial or ethnic group, specifically the Academy is referring to this list, which they lay out in black and white print, Asians, Hispanic slash Latinx, Black slash African American, Indigenous slash Native American slash Alaskan Native, Middle Eastern slash North African, Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander or other underrepresented race or ethnicity. When a standard or its text is referring to an underrepresented group and the text doesn't specifically list that list of ethnicities, the Academy is referring to women, racial or ethnic groups, which is that list of ethnicities I just went through, mm-hmm. LGBTQ+, people with cognitive or physical disabilities or who are deaf or hard of hearing. So long story short, with these four standards where you where as of four years from now, studios are going to have to meet a minimum of two of the four of them, the standards are meant to push for equality of basically any oppressed or historically underrepresented group. It's not trying to purposefully omit anyone. And there's other catch-all language that says basically... If you can think in your mind of an underrepresented group or minority, that's who we're talking about here. So just kind of a catch-all for everyone. And there's catch-all phrases there that are you just like want to applaud. I mean, because it sounds so mm-hmm. progressive, and it, it it's just never been said by a leadership body like 
you know, this in the past. It hasn't been said by this leadership body, let's just say. So, of course, Mike, you and I, we praise the Academy for actually creating diversity and inclusion initiatives a few months right. ago. They put some actions and some money behind the statements they were making uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement towards actually developing more equality and representation in their business. Now they put, I mean, they've said they were going to put standards up there. Now they've done so. Let's see if they can actually reaffirm and support those initiatives. And I just want to say, too, at the outset, we're saying these don't go far enough. There are people out there who are taking the stance that, you know, some people are saying that these are bad because they're going to dictate what studios can and can't make into movies. First, I don't think those people exist that are actually saying that. And second of all, yeah, that's a terrible take. If people are actually saying that, no, these are not dictating what studios can and cannot make for movies at all. And we yeah. are on the side that anything striving for representation is good. I think we both think that the heart of what this is trying to do is good. It's just that the execution of it is probably lacking. The heart of what they're trying to do is noble at right. times. But right. I believe that when you take a closer look at these standards and the requirements, especially the minimum requirements, these do not go far at all. Right, right. You know, and I think we I think we both agree with that at the yeah. end of the day. So actually, people who are worried about this, like if there's racist people out there, like I'm just using race as an example, right? Or mm -hmm. chauvinist people out there. If they're... If they're worried that, oh, my God, we're really we have to change our business practices. No, you don't. Unfortunately, right. you don't. Right. Because these are such the bare minimum requirements. And that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> right. That you yeah. could just keep doing whatever the hell right. you want to do. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about these four standards. The Academy lists them of standard A, B, C, and D. We'll talk about standard A real quick. I'll try to surmise it as quickly as I can. Standard A. Remember that any studio needs to meet at least two of these as of four years from now. So standard A deals with on-screen representation themes and narratives. To achieve standard A, the film must meet one of the following criteria. And of the following criteria, the Academy is striving for representation in either at least one lead or significant supporting actor. Remember, again, we're talking about uh, the list of ethnicities or the list of otherwise that was having to do with women, LGBTQ+, etc., etc. Yeah. Or at least 30% background slash secondary slash minor characters or having to do with the main storyline. Representation in any one of those three prongs will satisfy standard A for on-screen representation themes and narratives. So this is like saying, Mike, to be healthy, one can do one of three things. And you only have to do one of these three things to be healthy. You can have a strict diet. You could have a, a difficult exercise regimen. Or you can drink a glass of water every day. <laughs> One of those things, and you will be entirely healthy. Like this I don't is know that it's dumbest. that dire, but no, yes, you're right. No, it's that dire. It's that dire because every well, single Well, dieting's movie, hard, I mean. <laughs> every single movie can basically live up to these right. standards. With the exception of the beer garden, white sausage fest levels. Like if a neo-Nazi wanted to remake 12 Angry Men, maybe he could not meet these standards, well. at least on the surface. Because I think even 1917 with the subplot and Dunkirk, I mean, look, a white war movie about a white Caucasian war. All right, those are obvious movies that could kind of fall through the cracks. 12 Angry Men, obviously movies like that. The Lighthouse doesn't have a female. Again, I'm just taking this from the perspective of gender. There is a love interest or a lead actress in every movie. So that's why I'm making the joke about the, the glass of water. Like, it's just, it is in every movie. So why is that on the same level as something that's kind of important to say we need a lot of background actors or we need a main storyline that addresses underrepresented peoples. I mean, those are actually two important, you know, criteria here. And why is it only 30% if you're going to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's a lowball in it, but fine. All right, at least that's better than what we got right now. But to just say, all right, if you have a lead actress in your movie, if you have an actress in your movie, essentially, you, you meet the criteria. Right, you satisfy standard A, which is... It's a joke. Yeah, the differentiation being for prong one, a significant player has to be of a different ethnicity 
and for prong two, at least 30% have to be women. I mean, that's, or women or LGBTQ plus or, or of that second group of the non just specifically ethnicity group. Th- that's the difference, but you're right. It's still, yes, every movie pretty much satisfies it because the bar is so low. And we're going to talk about at the end of these four standards, when the bar is so low, you, there's a history that you do long-term damage more than long-term, any long-term good. In the industries that we're going to compare this to. Yeah. yeah. All right. Standard B has to do with creative leadership and project team. To achieve standard B, the film must meet one of the criteria below. So this applies to, as the title states, representation in a minimum of two department heads throughout production, i.e. head costume designer, composer, uh, director, etc., etc., uh, has to be from either woman or a racial or ethnic group, LGBTQ+, and at least one of those must also be from the listed group of ethnicities as well. Or, representation in at least six crew members slash technical positions Ugh. must be satisfying the uh, race or ethnicity or women, or et cetera, et cetera. Or, representation in a minimum of 30% of the entire film crew must be from those underrepresented groups. So it sounds like they got into a semantic argument over indie film productions and, you know, studio film productions. And they said and they put that six crew member technical positions, you know, caveat in there. It's really tough to have a blanket that applies evenly to every type of film and still say we're the Academy. We're open to all types of films. And this is the example I brought up yesterday. Like if you and me who were raised in the suburbs, who went to primarily white schools, just uh, that's where we lived, that's where we were raised. If we tried to make this guerrilla film in our 30s now with the people we know, uh, yeah, we may have trouble meeting some of the stuff. We would, I mean, just because that's the type of people we are. But that's the thing that they're trying to avoid, is that they're trying to make it so it applies evenly to the two guys in their 30s to decide to make a film as well as Disney and it's really tough to have an effective rule when you're trying to placate everyone and have a rule that affects everyone evenly Mike in the event that you and I make the Dave Matthews biopic (laughs) together with a couple of our white friends we don't deserve to be nominated for best picture I don't care how goddamn good that movie is right well that's the other side of this and this is where you and I differ a little bit is that I think What these rules are doing primarily is the Academy is saying you have to hit these minimum thresholds and all that does, if you hit those, is allow you to get to the point that somebody can nominate you. But the onus and the burden of all of this is for race to be such the hot button topic and equality to be the hot button topic in society that it is right now currently. And not just when it's trending and when it's cool to post the black box on social media and when it's cool to follow all the, you know, the leader, it it needs to stay a topic of conversation, a main topic of conversation. And it's up to people like us and viewers and audience members and fans and critics alike to tell a film when it doesn't do enough. And if a film doesn't do enough, just because it hits these minimum thresholds, if it doesn't do enough, it doesn't get near the Academy Awards. So where I get angry about this whole thing is the minimum thresholds being in in their very existence. Like if you put these standards out there with with a few omissions, like every movie doesn't need to have a main storyline about underrepresented peoples. Although I think we need so many more of those Mm -hmm. movies out there, but obviously you're not wrong to make a movie about white dudes. You're not wrong to make that on its face. Of course not. That being said, a lot of movies have been made about white dudes (laughs) that have been nominated for best picture. Most of them, I would say. Anyway, I just think when you put these thresholds in and you say either, or, and you basically say like, you know, to save our planet from global warming, you, you know, can either reduce harmful emissions in the atmosphere by X amount of percent, or you can recycle a few plastic right. bottles. Right, that's exactly what like, I was going to say. Like, <laughs> the fact that you could say, you know, six crew people, six crew people can be of the group of underrepresented peoples is absurd to a Hollywood yeah. production. Here's exactly what happened. And and we're, we're kind of taking a pause here because A and B are the ones that 
effect on screen and C and D, which we're going to talk about in a second, are kind of more behind the scenes stuff. But here, here's exactly the problem that the Academy faced. The Academy came out and they introduced all these equality initiatives, which were great. And we gave them props for, like you said, we already did. OK. And then they came out and they promised that they were going to do an, an initiative affecting best picture. And when they sat down and made rules and were starting to spitball ideas about what we can do to make sure equal representation is a bigger deal in terms of uh, films that are up for Best Picture or up for the Academy Awards, they said, oh shit, we can't make these thresholds too unreasonably high and you could decide amongst yourselves whatever unreasonable is in that circumstance. We can't make these two unreasonable. This is exactly what happened, I guarantee (laughs) you, because we're going to piss off major studios, and if major studios uh, get their lawyers involved, one, they'll crush us, two, we need their money, three, we can't run the risk of any streaming service pulling out and making their own award show and going directly against us. And we need to placate our ABC bosses so we can't piss off Disney, etc., etc. So what the Academy did... And four, four, they would have to admit that previous production have been in the wrong. They would have to admit to wrongdoing, past wrongdoing. They would have to admit to an unequal system. They would have to admit to the fact that they're, you know, that most of their productions are white sausage fests. They would have to admit that, that they have the uh, the diversity of a fucking beer garden on a Tuesday night. They would have to admit to being wrong, studios. Uh, and, and the Academy and the, and the movies they've picked for Best Picture. They would have to admit to that. Right. And they don't admit to that because essentially 95 to 97% of all the movies they've nominated in the past would qualify for these goddamn rules. Well, Going and, into it. Right. And, and, and with that rage... They were damned if they did and damned if they did nothing because when they said they were going to do something about equality and the initiatives and and affecting the Oscars specifically, not just the equality initiatives they did otherwise, when they said they were going to do something about representation for the best picture, everybody was waiting for them to come out with it. So now they're in a position where they're like, oh shit, we can't make these uh, thresholds too high because we don't want to piss off our dear money overlords. We can't make them too low because people are just going to mock us. So And we can't say nothing because we already promised we were going to say something and make new rules so if they said nothing people like us would jump down their throats they made the thresholds too low so people like us are jumping down their throats if they made the thresholds too high the studios would be jumping down the throat they were fucked they, they shot themselves in the foot when they said this was going to directly affect the oscars and again we need to underscore since we're ranting like this we think there needs to be something but if you're gonna do it do it so it fucking matters this is inconsequential, ultimately. By saying or and or and or, it's inconsequential. And you can get away with hiring three people that you would have hired regardless. Three people can satisfy these requirements, as few as three people. So that's the joke of all this, because you got, you know, casts and crews of hundreds for most of these Best Picture nominees. And we're not talking about Cassavetti's award noms at these indie spirits here. We're not talking about movies made for less than a half a million dollars. We're not talking about casts and crews of Blair Witch size or of the Mike, Mike, and Oscar indie film that we're going to make about Dave Matthews. We're not talking about that, Mike. We're talking about about Best Picture nominees. If you... (laughs) can't have six underrepresented peoples in your film crew and a Best Picture nominee, a shame, you mean shame on you. Right, and that's the part that I think falls to us as fans and us as critics and Twitter and social media at large and people running as a check on the industry, not just the Academy. If. The Academy doesn't want to be a check on the industry, Mike. That's what it is. They no, don't they want don't. to cause waste. Of course waves. they don't. Right, they, right. They, that's exactly what it is. Unhealthy, they see an unhealthy system. They see an unhealthy system. And this is like treating, you know, a cancer patient with aspirin. It's just like, yeah. It no, can help. I'll tell you Maybe what this is. Drop of this the is Michael Jordan saying Republicans buy sneakers too. This is that with this language. That, and the reason yeah. why, why I'm so pissed off about this, with this beautiful language saying, like, this is what needs to happen, right? This is at least a step in the right, right. The right direction. And then they put that up next to this you know ridiculously easily met standard right that it, when you actually look at it they are saying a lot of the right things but there are such obvious loopholes in here that they should be fucking called out for it bottom right. and now and so now the hope is at least my hope like again i'd rather there be something than nothing if you if it's so inconsequential and so ineffectual like there's a reason to believe this is 
if it's going to cause long-term damage, you need to build on it. So my hope is this starts, this is the first base of this initiative, this inclusion initiative, representation initiative, as far as affecting the best picture of contending films. And then in two years after it comes into play, we get another level and they add on to it and they get the more stringent baseline thresholds. Because the biggest problem with this, with this language is like you said, if they said not that these are the minimals, that this is what you have to do. If they said, this is the very least, or these are guidelines, or you should do no less than, then there's reason to think that there would right. at least be a mechanism to scold studios or to hold studios accountable for only doing the bare minimum. But there's not that, because they're saying, if you do this, you satisfy the prong. You satisfy the representation standards put forth by the Academy, which is what the, you're complaining about, which is absolutely it, right, I think. In 2020, shame on you if you're only doing the bare minimum. And I want to see, like, I know they're going to be confidential reports, but I want to see these reports about all the Best Picture nominees, about all the movies that are eligible for Best Picture at the end of the day. Because if they're not living up to seven-eighths of this criteria, and like, again, not every movie can be you know, about underrepresented peoples or should be about underrepresented peoples. White guys can have movies. They're, they're not, they're not wrong to be, to make movies about white guys. Fine. But you, you, you have to meet most of these criteria. If you don't, then it's sh- shame on you. And what Simple we keep referring to, and you mentioned it in passing already, but the Rooney rule of the NFL has proven to be detrimental to black head coaching candidates being hired. And the, what the Rooney rule was, was uh, it was a rule passed in the early two thousands that said, basically, before you hire your next head coach, you need to interview at least one minority candidate. And so what teams started doing was basically interviewing the same minority candidates just to fill the quota of the Rooney rule and say, look, we interviewed the minority candidate, the one guy you said we needed to at least interview, but we wanted to hire this other white guy instead again. And so it became basically this running joke that long term, it wasn't actually striving for representation and equality. No underrepresented or minority candidates or coordinators were actually getting a chance to be interviewed and get these jobs because teams had already made up their minds prior to firing their current head coach, who they wanted as their next head coach. So they saw the interview as just a formality. So they brought in guys that were just going to fill the quota of having to interview one minority candidate without actually letting them interview for the job. That's the exact equivalent we're kind of drawing in the line here. Absolutely. And to prove everything you just said, let's talk about the statistics of the NFL. There are 32 teams, right? There are 32 head coaching positions, 32 GMs. And out of those 64 spots, you have three black head coaches and two black GMs. Five of the 64 spots, 7% of the leadership positions, you know, hired in that league, that is composed of Michael 68% black players. Right. So how's the minimums of the Rooney rule working out for you NFL? How, I mean, they're, they're literally at the point now where they're going to start bribing people openly bribing people to hire minority candidates. I mean, it's a joke. So how have these, you know, easily met minimum requirements worked in a a major industry, basically with a lot of white power atop of it. And don't tell me 7% is a great increase either. I don't care what the numbers were when the Rooney rule was instituted. 7% in 2020 is a joke. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. So again, you know, we're applying 1930s bare minimums. And what boggles my mind, Mike, is the Academy saying that these rules were basically modeled after the British Film Institute rules of equality and representation. Let's model ourselves after BAFTAs (laughs) that were just so white. Great job. That's really smart. But still, like, you're telling me there aren't enough attorneys in the room of the Academy that say, hey, look, I get what you guys are doing, but you're gonna fucking get killed on social media. I just don't think people are reading these rules. They're not reading the ors part. And that's why we're here kind of to call them out. And, you know, who are we to do so? But whatever. Uh, look, I mean, when you talk about standard C, Mike, we, we haven't gotten there yet because we kind of went, we zoomed by, by it. But basically that requires both representation uh, in paid internships and apprenticeships and representation below the line yeah, training. Yeah, we held off on that because right, standard C is the thing I'm most impressed with out of any of this. That would be huge. Yeah. That would be huge to, you know, basically 
have a pipeline of talent. The right. stuff that Ava DuVernay's had to, you know, right. go out of her way to shepherd, and, and so many people uh, have, have go, they've created entire initiatives. And it's in a multi-pronged test. You have to satisfy not only these ongoing internships; you have to do them paid, but you also have to offer opportunities below the line and training for below the line op- below the line jobs. I mean, that's that's a two-pronged test. You have to actually cultivate talent for people who may otherwise have historically not been allowed in and maybe gatekeeped from the film industry. That's great. That's what these rules should be striving for. I love and- standard C. When standard C applies to simply a plurality, basically two people, if you have two interns or two apprentices, right, as far as we know, maybe there's a number in there that we don't know. And on the reports, it says you got to have 20 people and a crew this size and a percentage. I hope it does. But basically, that should be a requirement for every production this size. Right. What are we doing? Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you don't have, if you, if, if there's 50% women out there, I just looked this up to going into today. This is how effed up my brain was today. <laughs> how many women are there in the world? <laughs> That's what I was Googling. It's like the, 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 these rules can't be in effect for, you know, some, for a, a segment of the population where there's it's 50% women. And if you if you go into a film school nowadays, I'm sure the percentage is high. So yeah, they also like- screwed up by doing that. Like you can't. I don't think you can put. I mean, if the Supreme Court of the United States has said there's a difference between race and gender, which they have, I don't think you can just shove them in the same category and have the same rule apply to them. It and if you do, you certainly mind. can't say you can satisfy one by just satisfying the other. If this came out where you had minimum requirements for every single underrepresented person, right. group of people, right, and you had, fine, you had qualifiers for the type of project it is and what it's based on and the storyline, whatever. If you had qualifiers in there, fine. Again, I don't love it, but bottom line, this is an academy saying that these are standards for a trophy. So it's, it's, a, it's something that's trying to influence people, influence the studios. It's not at the end of the day. It's not something that says you can't make a movie. Uh, if you want to make a white sausage fest of a movie, you can. At the, but you can't win an Oscar for it. This is the Academy trying to make that line in the sand. Here's what we stand for, kind of right. moment. And, and that's why this is short. Yeah, that's why well intentioned and horribly executed joke. And, and 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 I mean, as much as we do like standard C, and I mean, you could take either part of it—the representation part, the cultivating talent part, or the part where it like insists on paid internships, which is a problem in and of itself in America right, right. now. But you don't even have to abide by standards. Like you only have to satisfy two of the four per- standards in order to be eligible, and you naturally, like we just talked about for forty minutes, by default, most movies satisfy A and B. So <laughs> you don't even have to worry about C and D. Yeah, I mean, if you're making The Lighthouse and you somehow did not have a lead actress, but you had six women on your crew, then, okay, you have to hire two interns to, yeah. to still, you know, meet these standards, which is yeah. just absurd. Standard D, you know, again, have... Sorry, go ahead. No, again, it's just not... It's woefully short. I mean, again, it's even in that... Uh, circumstance where you're making the lighthouse it's about two guys fine two white guys fine eight people solves the problem and yeah. it, that's the joke of it it does not even come close to solving any problems and it's something that exists throughout every imdb page ever go do it yourself look at the women that are in the cast in the crews of all these productions yeah. and again 98 percent of these movies are going to live up to the standards already so they're not changing a gosh darn thing well-intentioned horribly executed is the the theme for this uh, standard d the final one having to do with audience development to achieve standard d the film must meet the criterion below which is representation in marketing publicity and distribution requires rep- representation among in-house senior executives within the studio or whoever is making the film yeah, it's uh, great. You know, you have uh, two people in the entire office, right? Right. Exactly. From an yeah. underrepresented group, and you can have an office full of hundreds of people, and or you can have or whatever. Two people with corner offices, I guess, is is one of the requirements, right? Essentially, two leaders uh, has multiple in-house senior executives from among the following underrepresented group on their marketing, publicity, and or distribution teams. Again, I don't think this is necessarily something that's very uncommon. It's it's common 
for most movies to meet these standards already. So it's the it's the industry they patting themselves they on the want, back. They didn't want they didn't want to to push the studios. They know where their bread is buttered, and they don't want to be a check on the movie industry. That's what it comes down to. It's lip service, Mike. It's lip service. It's nonsense. They don't want to be a check. That's why I, I call bullshit. Yeah. Simple as that. I, I am hopeful that it means more in the future. Like, it, it took until 2020 to get any rules at all from the Academy having to do with race. So let's, like, hope that we get our next round within two years as opposed to another hundred. Um, yeah. But I, I just hope that you don't need to because right. people That's exactly where I was start going. hiring if, the right people. If, if equality and representation stays at the forefront of conversation as it has all 2020... And as it should from far before 2020, if it stays as a hot button issue as it is, hopefully none of this matters anyway, because it'll all take care of itself because it just will. I mean, it has to. We're all on top of everyone right now striving for representation and equality and change and all of that stuff. And right. I mean, the, the you know, film Twitter alone goes all up in arms when they see a studio falling through and not being fair with those hallmarks. So hopefully this is all unnecessary anyway. And hopefully the problem in the industry strives to be progressive of itself. And we don't have to worry about the Oscars setting standards. Hopefully we will see. Hopefully. And I agree with you. I agree with all that. I just, you know, if, it, if it's something that works by the spirit of the rule and people feel ashamed if they don't meet all of the requirements then I, I, I like they should yeah then uh, i i would agree with you but uh i don't know i just seen precedent in other in- industries that we mentioned one today yeah nfl doesn't work for them i don't know so a loaded episode like we said uh literally have about half more of the document to cover which we will at some point soon uh, we have a lot more stuff to go over but uh, we knew that the the first three or so topics were going to be very intensive and very heavy uh, and so that's why we want to get those at the forefront now to you guys we want to reconnect ourselves and and be back in the Mike Mike and Oscar swing before the next part of my body inevitably shuts down and puts me on the the IL for the uh, time no. being <laughs> don't let it happen Mike stay in the bubble bubble boy that's what you need to become, please. So, guys, we do want to hear, as always, your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns about the Academy Initiative, specifically about Nomadland, about the Venice Film Festival, anything else that we do here in the MMO Empire. You can leave us all of those. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Instagram, at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com, and on Reddit. We are available everywhere you hear podcasts. If you are continuing to listen to us during quarantine, if you're in your house, if you're commuting to work, cannot thank you enough if you would be so kind as to go on the Apple Podcast app if you can leave us a quick five-star review it would take all of about ten seconds and make our entire day Michael what is coming up next from MMO and what are some good words of wisdom to end on here so coming up next we're going to have an interview with uh, one of the cast members of Rent-A-Pal and uh, we got that scheduled uh, on Monday so you guys will get it Tuesday Wednesday there Rent-A-Pal is a movie that uh comes from IFC Midnight that uh, Eric Weber of Awards Ace really touted to us as a as a film that that deserves to be watched. Uh, we've seen it. We've watched the screener, and uh, I'm a big fan. I think super uh, excited. I think Joker. It, it reminds me a lot of like a more realistic Arthur Fleck story in that regard. I mean, it is a horror movie. It's a psychological horror movie that's tough to watch. It's a, it reminds me of Black Mirror and David Cronenberg. And I'm thinking of Ending Things and you know Robert De Niro's King of Comedy and a lot of Aronofsky movies. Uh, but uh, really well directed by Mr. Stevenson there and great performances as we're going to talk about. So bravo. Everybody at IFC Midnight, thanks for giving us uh, an early look. But they've yeah. had a good year. I mean, we praised them for, for movies like Relic. And since the beginning of our podcast, Mike, we praised them for, for movies like The Devil's Candy. I mean, if you guys are just coming to us today, look, we love horror movies. Mike, you're a horror guru. Mm. And I've I've come along for the ride liking a lot of horror movies with you throughout this you know three-year journey now. I think we're almost coming up on our three-year anniversary, right? It's we, we just passed it. Time never ends. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> I'm supposed to say something else. But uh, 
what, words of wisdom? Yeah. All right. And I think this is important. I want to get this out there. And it's important for me because I've really struggled over the last few days of just like exercising myself. And I, I say exercising E X O R. <laughs> C-I-S-I-N-G, like an exorcism. The demons, yeah. I've quit cigars, and I've had, like, the worst nicotine withdrawal. I've had mood swings. I've been losing my mind. I felt like a rabid dog recording this entire episode today. I just felt like I'm frothing at the mouth. I'm so angry. I'm so on edge all the time. Because during quarantine, I, like... I just was smoking cigars all day. I mean, I'm in front of a laptop all day, whatever. I'm just smoking cigars all day. My voice has gotten lower probably since <laughs> when we started. And I needed to stop, and I threw all the cigars out a couple days ago, but I'm just like, nah, nah, nah. I'm losing it now. Don't get addicted to nicotine as some words of wisdom, folks. It's as simple as that. The withdrawal symptoms are real. I'm, I'm getting some help out there. I'm talking to some people uh, at uh, a Quit Now helpline or whatever. They're, they're, they're awesome. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not easy. I'm drinking a lot of green tea, let's just say. It's a nightmare. But if I put it out there in the world, Mike, it'll kind of hold me accountable a little bit, and I won't. You know, relapse. yeah, I get it. And you're fighting the good fight there, buddy. Keep on, keep on trucking, keep your head up. And for what it's worth, I think your your anger was it, it dignified this episode, I would say. I doubt it. When I re-listen <laughs> to it, I'm probably going to hate it. But uh, look, we talked about some, you know, important topics today, though. And I, th- I think I would have been angry regardless. But I was a little extra, a <laughs> little extra crazy, a little little twinkle in my eye for good reason today. It's because nicotine is, is nicotine is so addictive. At least you saved it for the Academy's willfulness and you didn't start with like, you know, I'll tell you something about Kate Blanchett. Right. I'm glad we were doing this today and not like reviewing a movie that I just would hate more right. than I should have. Guys. Uh, Trolls we... World Tour. Also, Mike, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> when reality, or I guess in this case, withdrawal sucks, you can come watch these movies with us. Hopefully, uh, learn a thing or two and share some laughs along the way. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon.